Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. Hey, fellow babies, before we get into the episode, we do want to just take a moment. We normally don't do anything that dates the show, but we would like to mention the loss of a key, key player this last weekend. Howard Hessman passed away on January 29th of 2022, so we did lose Dr. Johnny Fever over this past weekend, and we're very sad about that, but glad that we've got these performances to enjoy forever. Rest in peace, Howard, and thank you so much for giving us Johnny Fever. We wanted to do a tribute to Howard Hessman, but we weren't sure what. We wanted it to both celebrate Howard, but also focus on the Johnny Fever character, since it's really Johnny, not Howard, who we've been living with, working with, and laughing with for the last 18 months. Just like Mr. Hesman, whatever we did had to be both cool and unique. I just finished a 10-hour road trip. I had a lot of time to think while I was driving, and I think I've got it. We're going to make a Dr. Johnny Fever air check. It will contain every clip of Johnny when he is on the air, just like a real air check. This is only what he says into the mic out to Cincinnati. We'll dress it up with tones between clips so it sounds like a real air check. I plan to make it starting from his time on the old WKRP, then moving chronologically from the needle scratch all the way through to this episode, number 65, Simple Little Wedding. We will post it to the podcast feed this Thursday. It will be its own standalone title. We will then update the air check at the end of the series to include everything he does on the air from episode 66 through 90. The Dr. Johnny Fever Air Check. This is the WKRP cast tribute to the legendary Howard Hessman and his one-of-a-kind creation, Dr. Johnny Fever. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? <laughs> Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast. My name is Donna Stair. And I'm her husband, Alan. This is a week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. We're getting into the music, the trivia, and the fun of WKRP. So, fellow babies, don't touch that dial. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to another WKRP cast. This week, we're heading down the aisle. Donna, what is our episode? We'll be discussing a simple little wedding. The air date was March 21st, 1981. Written by Blake Hunter. Story editor, Lisa Levin. Executive story consultants, Dan Gunselman and Steve Marshall. Directed by Nicholas Stamos. Arthur and Carmen's 25th wedding anniversary is approaching, and they plan to have the wedding ceremony that they never had because their marriage was an elopement. Unfortunately, Mama Carlson has her own plans for their ceremony. We caught a pretty big continuity error right off the bat with this episode. Art and Carmen are very definitely celebrating 25 years. They say it multiple times throughout the episode, yet... Two years ago, in the season one episode, Love Returns, Art told Andy, Carmen and I 
We've been married 27 years. The day I married that woman was the best thing that ever happened to me. How could something like this happen? Well, sitcoms used to treat every episode as though it were its own little universe. No mention would be made of a previous plot or any background character details, aside from the ones that were needed for that specific episode. Whatever was created for an episode would be forgotten by the next episode. Remember how the Bradys were suddenly Davy Jones fans and knew everything about him, but only for that one episode? Nobody ever mentioned Davy or his music on any other Brady episode. This clean slate approach to characters meant you might get some piece of information like this one that completely contradicts earlier information. As sitcoms evolved, there was more attention paid to cataloging character details and tracking past events so they could be referenced accurately throughout the run of the series. Even shows that track do make mistakes, but we don't think WKRP's first season writing crew was too worried about it. They'd just throw out numbers whenever they felt like it. Later seasons seemed to pay more attention to chronology and character history. Last week's Out to Lunch started a run of five weeks in a row with brand new WKRP episodes debuting at 8 p.m. on Saturday nights. Even though Saturday nights are overall at the bottom of the heap when it comes to ratings, it would at least be nice to win the time slot, right? Well, unfortunately, the show can't even consistently beat direct Saturday night competition. Only last week and this week will win their time slot. Eight is Enough over on ABC will win the hour next week, and for the final two weeks of new episodes, Barbara Mandrell and the Mandrell Sisters will be on top with their Comedy Music Variety Hour on NBC. And for some reason, I have a memory of the Barbara Mandrell show. I saw it once or twice, and I remember it not being good. Did you see it? Yeah, we watched a few of those, and I wasn't all that impressed. Ladies and gentlemen, Barbara Mandrell. I remember a lot of big hair and bad corny jokes. And we had some fun with our director, Nicholas Stamos, the last time we met him. He directed Venus Rising, and you may remember it was his first time to have ever directed anything. Ever. Nicholas is the guy who started in Hollywood as an actor. He picked up a total of four credits and quit acting. Then he directed about four years. He finally got into production and seems to have found his showbiz niche. This episode was during his directing phase. He's back for his second of three WKRP episodes. Nicholas will direct for the last time in season four's The Impossible Dream. Our writer, Blake Hunter, seems to have appointed himself the official chronicler of the private life of Art and Carmen Carlson. It was Blake who first gave us this oh-so-happy couple in Season two's Patter of Little Feet. That's when he introduced the idea of a later-in-life pregnancy for the Carlsons. Blake was back providing the script for the delivery of this unnamed bundle of joy in Season three's The Baby. Now he's giving us a glimpse of their first wedding and we're getting to join in on the 25th anniversary celebration. We even get more Mama Carlson. More Mama. 
Let's get into the episode. Herb, Bailey, and Jennifer are at Jennifer's desk in the lobby playing Monopoly. Herb has rolled the dice and moves his piece. Jennifer is very happy about where Herb landed. Oh, no. Woo! North Carolina with a hotel. I can't believe this is happening to me. $1,275, Herbert. $1,275. It's just a game. Herb tells Jennifer, sure, it's just a game to her. She is rich and has all the properties. <laughs> got the race car. I've got the wheelbarrow, and I haven't, been, I haven't passed going two hours. Jennifer holds out her hand, palm up. Give me the money, Herb. Herb tells her he hasn't got it. He's only got eighteen dollars. <laughs> Everything's mortgaged. So Herb, Bailey, and Jennifer are playing the incredibly popular board game Monopoly. Monopoly was based on an earlier game developed by anti-monopolist Lizzie Maggie. Lizzie created what was called the Landlord Game in 1903. She wanted to use it as a way to explain a single-tax economic theory. Now, Maggie created two sets of rules. One was the anti-monopolist set. It came complete with taxation and rewards to all of the players when wealth was created. The other rule set was a no-tax, totally monopolistic version where the object was to become a monopolist and crush your opponents into bankruptcy. Well, obviously, the second version became the hit. Several variations on the Landlord game were developed between 1906 and the early 1930s. Maggie even patented the game in 1923. In 1932, a Mr. Charles Todd of Philadelphia invited Charles Darrow over for dinner. After dinner, the Todds introduced Darrow to the Landlord Game. He was bowled over by it. They played it more than once that night. Darrow asked for a handwritten set of rules. Mr. Darrow then went home and created a game based on Maggie's rules. He called it Monopoly and started to distribute it on his own. He didn't care that his game drew heavily from someone else's creation. His property names came from streets in his hometown of Atlantic City, New Jersey. In 1935, Parker Brothers wanted in on the action. They bought the game's rights from Darrow. Now, once Parker Brothers found out about Maggie's patent, they also bought the rights from her for $500. That's about $10,000 in 2022 money. Monopoly has become a part of the international pop culture. It's been sold in more than 100 countries and has been translated into 37 languages. Hasbro bought Parker Brothers and their holdings, including Monopoly, in 1991. Since then, they've shaken up the classic with new rules, new versions, and even new tokens. In March of 2017, they added the playable Penguin, Rubber Duck, and T-Rex. <laughs> oh, and Herb's right. According to a 1998 poll, the most popular token is the race car, least popular, the wheelbarrow. I know Monopoly was a popular game in our family. We played it a lot, and my favorite piece was the shoe. I was the uh, top hat. I was always a top hat top guy. Hat. Had to have that top hat. Bailey looks at Herb and tells him, then he is out. I can't just go out. I mean, come on, give me a break. Jennifer explains he's bankrupt. <laughs> Please. What can I do? Bailey has an idea. We could play strip Monopoly. <laughs> she tells Herb he could give them his coat. Good, I'll take the coat. Jennifer and Bailey are smiling at Herb. Guess what item of apparel is next? Woo! <laughs> Herb is not amused. 
He asks if this is what women's liberation is all about humiliation. We just heard you had great legs. And I love the fact that we're talking about them playing a board game in the lobby of the place where they work, and we have no problem with them just playing a game right there at work. (laughs) So Herb did a little mini rant about women's liberation. The women's liberation movement, also called Women's Lib and WLM, is considered part of the second wave of feminism. It started in the 1960s, and it was hitting the end of the movement by the 1980s. WLM attempted to eliminate discrimination based on gender and sexual discrimination against women. The women's lib movement was radical to the point of alienating some second-wave feminists. They stayed away from the movement, especially in the early days, because it was so aggressive and off-putting for a lot of people. The WLM is credited with creating a global awareness of patriarchy and sexism. Male chauvinist was a term coined by the WLM. Now, the Great Legs comment got Herb's attention. He looks at the two women, raising one eyebrow. Smiling and shifting from one foot to the other, Herb asks, Who told you? Less. (laughs) Herb walks away from them and heads through the door leading to the bullpen. Laughing, Jennifer asks Bailey if she wants to play. Bailey tells her, sure, and they begin clearing the board for a new game. Art enters the lobby from the main door. He's singing and in a great mood. He puts his briefcase on Jennifer's desk and he says good morning to them. Have I got something to show you two? He doesn't seem concerned that they're playing game either. No concern at all that there's a Monopoly board right there in the middle of Jennifer's (laughs) desk. So Carlson opens his briefcase, then slams it shut. Not here, in my office. More private. Art goes into his office singing again. Bailey and Jennifer follow. Art opens his briefcase now on his desk where he pulls out a dark blue velvet bag, and out of that comes a small jewelry box. He opens the box and shows it to Bailey and Jennifer. Oh, Mr. Carlson, it's beautiful. Bailey tells him it must have cost a fortune. Uh, how much, guess? Jennifer has taken Bailey's glasses from her jacket pocket and is using them like a jeweler's loop to inspect the piece of jewelry. It's crass to discuss the price of such things. Jennifer is now holding the jewelry box up close to her eyes. <clears throat> You're right, but guess anyway. <laughs> 2700 wholesale, 34.5 retail. Mr. Carlson looks at Jennifer a little put out, then takes the jewelry box from her. She hit it right on, it looks like. <laughs> now, we hate to argue with Jennifer, especially when it comes to diamonds, but according to CuriousMindMagazine.com, diamonds in a retail store have been marked up anywhere from 1.6 to 3 times the wholesale cost of the diamond. If Jennifer's $2,700 wholesale estimate is accurate... That means Art's Little Beauty would go for anywhere from 4300 all the way up to 8100 retail. That's about what you paid for mine, right, dear? Sure, dear. You keep believing that. <laughs> Bailey asks Mr. Carlson if it's for Carmen. Mr. Carlson says it is. We're getting married again. Bailey asks Carlson why. He tells them they really didn't get married the first time. You mean you and Carmen have been living in sin for 25 years? (laughs) Yeah. Jennifer's smiling at Mr. Carlson. He explains now they were legally married, but they never had a wedding. They eloped. So for their silver wedding anniversary, they thought they'd have a little wedding and invite a few close friends including everyone from the station. And he said, little wedding. Yes. Little wedding. So Art said it was their silver wedding anniversary. And that's one of those things that you kind of take for granted. Big wedding anniversaries have these 
precious metals attached to them. The 25th, as mentioned, is silver, 50th is gold, and 70th is platinum. We wondered why. As with most of our long-held but little understood traditions, this one can be traced to the ancient Romans, but also to medieval Germans. By the 18th century, there is evidence of marital gift-giving in German culture. A couple's friends might give a wreath made of silver if the couple should make it to 25 years, and a gold wreath for 50. In English-speaking regions, this practice of gift-giving didn't catch on until into the 1800s and the Victorian era. The reason? The love match was becoming the predominant force bringing couples together. Prior to the 1800s, especially among nobility, marriages were arranged. Strengthening land or political positions was far more important than actually loving the person you married. When the love match triumphed as a reason for getting married, it was pretty upsetting to the establishment at the time. Conservatives figured love is never going to hold a couple together, and keeping couples together was very important to the economy. The idea of giving gifts to celebrate milestone anniversaries was seen as a way to encourage a couple to hang in there. Now, although both the husband and wife are gifted, the emphasis quickly shifted to the wife. Well, obviously. She was seen as the driving force keeping the union together and would receive the most elaborate gifts, as it should be. Well, there you go. By the 1900s, retailers had gotten in on the custom with an expanded list of goods for even more years. In 1937, the American National Retail Jewelry Association introduced the most comprehensive list yet. I got to get a copy of this. It listed gift items for each individual anniversary through the 15th, then a gift every five years after that through the 90th. 15th is crystal, 20th is porcelain. So a toilet would be a good 20th anniversary gift. Don't even try it. After 20 years, it might be worth it to get a new toilet. <laughs> and should you have an old aunt and uncle make it to their 90th anniversary? That one is granite. And when I saw granite, it struck me as in tombstone? Because <laughs> if you've made it to your 90th anniversary, you that's not long. You pretty ding dang old. Yeah. I'm, I was thinking if you got married when you're 12... You'd be 102 on your 90th anniversary. Then right. you get that granite. I'm sorry, but granite's just not worth it for me, Not dear. worth it to make it to 90? No, I don't think so. Art looks at Jennifer and Bailey, and he asks them if they think his idea is corny. I think it's wonderful. I think it's terribly romantic. Bailey walks around behind Mr. Carlson, then leans on his right shoulder. Don't you think you ought to date around just a little bit first? <laughs> Jennifer comes up on the other side of Art and leans on the other shoulder. Yeah, why is it always the really good ones get away? How about it, Mr. Carlson? Bailey and Jennifer kiss Art on his cheeks. Yeah, like an Oreo cookie, he one is on each side. Giggling. <laughs> and remember, Gordon Jump actually got paid to do this. Tough day at work. <laughs> I, I, I think I should get back to work. Of course you should. <laughs> See ya, handsome. <laughs> <laughs> Bailey pinches his cheek as she and Jennifer leave the office. Mr. Carlson watches them go, and he's kind of reconsidering. Uh, maybe I should think about this a while. Art pauses to consider. And we head into our theme. WKRP in Cincinnati. We come back to the studio and we've got a whole new crop of posters on the wall. 
It's time for Poster Watch. Yay! <laughs> On the studio door is a poster for The Clash's fourth studio album, Sandinista. And wow, The Clash had a lot to say, and they piled up a lot of vinyl in the early 80s saying it. In the U.S., their first album release was Give Em Enough Rope in November of 1978. In July of 79, just eight months later, they had the U.S. release of their debut album, The Clash. It had already been released in the U.K. in 77. Then, in December of 79, now just five months later, they released London Calling, which was a double-disc set. This means three full vinyl discs of Clash music hit U.S. shelves in under six months. Now comes Sandinista in December of 1980. Sandinista, with the exclamation point, is a triple-disc set. That's a whole lot of clash. Sandinista will peak at number 24 on the U.S. album chart. The guy over Venus's right shoulder with the white strip across his face is Adam Ant. This was during a period when he was fronting a band called Adam and the Ants. Later, he would go solo. After a band defection in 1980, this is the first album from the second incarnation of Adam and the Ants. It's called Kings of the Wild Frontier. Dog Eat Dog, Ant Music, and the title cut were all released as singles. The album was the number one seller for 1981 in the UK. In the United States, it peaked at Number 44 on the Billboard album chart. Nobody in the U.S. was too interested in ants doing music yet. On Venus's left, the guy peering over the cool shades is Elvis Costello. This is a promo for his fifth album, his fourth with The Attractions. It's called Trust. It was released in January of 1981. Singles from Trust were Club Land, From a Whisper to a Scream, and Watch Your Step. Trust will peak at number 28 on the Billboard album chart in 1981. Directly beneath the Adam Ant poster, you can see the top edge of a promo poster for The Scooters and their 1981 album, Blue Eyes. We found a track listing and personnel lineup on Discogs. But other than that, there is no info out there about the 1980s version of a band called The Scooters. The single... Alien Nights is also posted to YouTube if you want to check that out. One more quick one. Under the window to the left of the door is a poster for the motel's second studio album, Careful. It had come out in June of 1980. This one did nothing. It only showed up on charts in Australia and New Zealand. Otherwise, the rest of the world not yet into the motels. Okay, back to the episode. Andy, Johnny, and Venus are in the studio when Jennifer enters. We hear I Can't Stand It by Eric Clapton playing. I have exciting news. Someone here at the station is getting married. Yeah? May I help you? They all begin guessing who it might be. Andy points at Jennifer. You! It's got to be you, of course. You're going to marry the Admiral. I knew it. I knew it had to happen. I'm slacking like that sometimes. Jennifer tells him. No. Venus thinks he knows who it is. Les Nesman. Les Nesman's going to marry Ethel Merman. <laughs> Jennifer again tells them no. It's Arthur Carlson. He and Carmen are getting married again. Now, isn't that the most exciting and romantic thing you have ever heard? Jennifer has her arms wrapped around herself as she says this. 
Johnny is playing I Can't Stand It. That's the first single from Clapton's 1981 album, Another Ticket. This is considered one of his biggest hits of this period. It will score a number 10 spot on the Billboard Hot 100. I can't stand it. The song also has the distinction of being the first number one on a new chart introduced by Billboard in March of 1981. It was called Billboard's Top Tracks. It was a chart for rock songs based more on radio plays than on sales. I Can't Stand It debuted on the chart at number one and would hold that position for a second week. Venus mentioned Les marrying Ethel Merman. <laughs> Ethel Merman is an American singer, actress, and artist known for her powerful voice and leading roles in musical comedy theater. There's no people like show people. They smile when they are long. Yesterday they told you you would not go far. She's been called the undisputed first lady of the musical comedy stage. Merman made her career with roles in shows like Annie Get Your Gun, Gypsy, and Hello Dolly. She was born in New York City in January of 1908 and she died there in February of 1984 at the age of 76. An interesting tidbit about Ethel. She might be hard to live with. (laughs) Ethel was married four times. Three of her marriages were very short, and the last one was the shortest. She married actor Ernest Borgnine on June 27th of 1964. By August 7th, five weeks later, they were separated. (laughs) Wow. He filed for divorce on October 21st. After that, Ethel gave up on marriage for the rest of her life. Andy is playing air drums to the music. Venus is looking through some 45s. And Johnny is counting some money. They give no reaction whatsoever to Jennifer's announcement about the wedding. I just thought that you three would want to be the first to know. We cut into the bullpen where we find Herb and Les arguing. And now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye NewsHawk Award winner, Les Nessman. This is the Les Nessman Bandage Report. Now here's Donna Stair with her report about Les Nessman. Left upper cheek. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cobb award-winning journalist Les Nessman. I'm telling you, damn it, without that greenhouse effect, everyone on Earth would freeze to death. Not so. Les, it would be 250 degrees below zero at night. Prove it. Prove it? How can I prove it? Bailey enters and asks them if they've heard the news about Mr. Carlson. He and Carmen are getting married again. Les asks Bailey why. She tells them it's because they eloped the first time. We have to buy gifts? Oh, no, no, no. no. <laughs> 
It's always about the money with Herb. Herb is always worried about the cash, so Bailey tells them no, they want to keep it small and simple. The office brains were arguing about the greenhouse effect. (laughs) This is a term used to describe our atmosphere. It allows the energy of sunlight to enter through to the planet's surface, where it is absorbed and converted into radiant heat. The atmosphere traps the radiant heat against the planet's surface. The greenhouse effect is very important, but it becomes dangerous when too much heat is retained. Amazingly, both of these guys is wrong. Is that so amazing? Well, yeah, it's really not, I guess. The Earth can't (laughs) survive without the greenhouse effect, so less is wrong, but Herb is also wrong. Scientists tell us the Earth would be about 54 degrees Fahrenheit cooler on average, without the natural warming of the greenhouse effect, not 250 below zero. We'd be cold without it, but we probably wouldn't freeze to death. Les tells them they ought to do something. He thinks Mr. Carlson would appreciate it. He suggests a little party. Bachelor party. Mm -mm. Bailey doesn't think it's a good idea. Herb says, why not? He hasn't been to a bachelor party in years. He tells him he will plan the whole thing. You stay out of this, Les. Huh? Les wasn't even listening. Herb tells Bailey and Les he wants to think of something out of the ordinary. Something uniquely unique. Bailey tells Herb she's trusting him to plan something tasteful. That was a bad move on her part. Come on, Bailey. She leaves the bullpen. Strippers. Gotta have strippers. Herb pulls his Rolodex (laughs) over to him and begins flipping through the cards. And whoa, Herb has strippers in his Rolodex? (laughs) You'd at least expect him to grab the yellow pages. Where do you go? S for strippers? Yeah, probably. Strippers. Gotta have strippers. (laughs) We transition now to a place we've never been before. This is Mama's house. We're looking at a beautifully decorated living room with a fireplace and some expensive-looking furniture and decor. We hear what sounds like a big grandfather clock chiming the hour. The camera pans over to a set of double doors just as they are opened. An elderly man in a butler's uniform walks in, followed by Art and Carmen. Thank you, Hirsch. My pleasure, Mr. Carlson. Your mother would be down directly. Hirsch is being played by, at the time, 85-year-old Ian Wolfe. Looking at Ian Wolfe's filmography on IMDb took our breath away. He first appeared in a movie in 1934. Between 1934 and his final appearance in 1990's Dick Tracy, Mr. Wolfe logged, get ready for it, 304 acting credits. Wow. Between 1934 and 1939 alone, he was in 36 movies. Here is an amazing statistic about Ian. Wolf appeared in 14 films that were nominated for the Best Picture Academy Award. So he was not appearing in low-budget crap. He was in good stuff. Of the 14, three were winners. Ian Wolf was born in November of 1896 in Canton, Illinois. He died in January of 1992 in Los Angeles at the age of 95. And even after 300-plus appearances, his bio on IMDb claims that playing Hirsch on WKRP gave him his greatest fame and recognition. Thankfully, this is not Hirsch's only appearance. 
The Hirsch and Mama Show will be back for three more episodes in the fourth season, and I can't wait. I'd have watched a <laughs> spinoff called Hirsch and Mama. Oh, I'd sure. Have, I'd have been there every week for that. We would also like to mention the two ladies in this scene. Now, Mama and Carmen are old friends to us by now, even if we only see them occasionally. Alan Ann McCleary debuted as Carmen Carlson in Patter of Little Feet. Carol Bruce is our second Mama Carlson in the series, and she's perfect as the tough-as-nails Carlson matriarch. She debuted in the first season episode, Mama's Review. For bios and info on these ladies, check out those podcast episodes. So Art tells Carmen Hirsch practically raised him. She tells him she knows. I remember saying to Hirsch, let's go out and throw that ball around. <laughs> Hirsch, old Hirsch, he'd say, well, maybe later, Mr. Carlson. <laughs> it's hard to beat a memory like that. Yeah. Art begins to reminisce as he looks around the big room. I'd come in here and sit. Sometimes I'd sit over there. <laughs> he points to a chair in the room. Art has some weird childhood memories. Sometimes I'd just stand. Through the doors, we see Mama coming down the stairs just as Carmen speaks. Arthur, you're going to be clear with your mother, aren't oh, you? Oh, you kidding? Clear above what? Startled, Carmen hurries over to kind of hide behind Arthur. She stands close beside him. He puts his arm around her waist. Mama asks if either of them would like a drink. They both tell her, no thank you. Which brings us to... The line of the episode. Hirsch! Carlson jumps. <laughs> he jumps in surprise when Mama yells out Hirsch's name. Every time she does that, I laugh. Every single time. One silver bullet shaken, not stirred. Mama asks them what brings them to her home. Then she lays on some mother guilt. <laughs> Not that a mother shouldn't be grateful for a simple phone call every now and then. <laughs> Beggars can't be choosy. How uh, have you been, Carmen? Tell me, I like you. <laughs> Carmen tells her she is fine. Carlson has wandered over behind the couch where Mama is sitting. He's looking at the things sitting on the sofa table. Mama asks Carmen how the little one is. You saw the baby Thursday. That I did. Mama ordered a silver bullet when she shouted for Hirsch. We looked up silver bullet cocktail recipes in several different places. Everybody seems to have a variation on what appears to be a somewhat traditional recipe. One thing all sources agree on, a silver bullet is about the strongest cocktail you can drink. So it's perfect for Mama. Yeah. All versions include gin and either lemon juice or a lemon twist. Some recipes mix two parts gin to one part whiskey, while others call for equal parts <laughs> gin and whiskey. It's a big glass of booze. The seemingly older and more traditional silver bullet recipes call for a liqueur called kummel instead of the whiskey. Kummel is a sweet liqueur flavored with licorice. Sarge looking at a large porcelain decorative jar. He reaches down and removes the lid. Without even looking, Mama knows what's happening. Don't touch that. It's those eyes in the back of her head. She's got those Mama eyes. Carlson yes. looks up surprised. He gently replaces the lid. Mama continues talking, telling them they have two lovely children. Jeans will tell. Sometimes. Carlson goes over to sit by Carmen. Mother, I'll get right to the point. Carmen and I would like to get married again. I see. <laughs> Carlson and Carmen jump. Mama looks at the two of them and says that she thought they were married. Carmen explains this time they'd like a little ceremony. Mama scoffs at this. 
Hirsch has come in with a drink on a tray, and he bends down to offer the drink to Mama. Shaken? Yes, ma'am. You're lying. If you say so, ma'am. Thank you. Oh, no. Thank you. (laughs) Hirsch leaves the room. So Mama, just like James Bond, prefers her cocktails to be shaken, not stirred. We were curious as to what was so different about the two methods. Well, according to the cocktail wiki on fandom, the difference between shaking and stirring is supposed to be amazing, but they didn't explain why. Foodie website The Spruce Eats says shaking creates some dilution and helps to marry the two flavors of a silver bullet. Oh, okay. Yes, marry them together. The result is supposed to be a much smoother cocktail. They say simply pouring the two ingredients into a glass will cause the tastes to fight with each other. Simply stirring can even create an off-putting flavor. They say if you can't shake, at least stir with ice and strain. We're betting if it was something to make the drink better, Hirsch didn't do it. You're lying. (laughs) (laughs) So Mama looks at Carlson and Carmen and asks them to continue. Art takes a deep breath. Mom, 25 years ago. Oh, don't say 25 years ago. Say a while ago. A while ago, we got married. And you ran away. Art looks at his mother. He tells her they ran away because she took over planning the wedding. This was becoming the biggest party that Cincinnati has ever seen. Mama tells him that's nonsense. Nonsense? Fred Waring and his Pennsylvanian singing in the backyard. That's not big. Senator Taft was coming. You invited Eisenhower. Carlson tells Mama he and Carmen didn't know any of those people. Mama tells him she did. Well, that's the point. You took over the wedding. It was all for you. I'm a mother. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And that sounds a little aggressive. Carmen puts her hand on Art's arm and says his name to calm him down. Carlson mentioned Fred Waring. Fred Waring is sometimes called the man who taught America how to sing. His big band, Fred Waring and his Pennsylvanians, had started out as Fred Waring's banjo orchestra in college. In fact, the orchestra gig became so lucrative, Fred dropped out of college to hit the road with the band. Waring and his Pennsylvanians would become one of the best-selling acts on Victor Records from 1923 through 1932, when Waring abruptly quit recording. Waring continued to perform on radio through 1957. He would also host the Fred Waring Show on television from June of 1948 through May of 1954. Waring continued performing and instructing music until his death in 1984 at the age of 84. Art said Senator Taft had been invited to his wedding. We've got some bad news. If this is their 25th wedding anniversary and it's 1981, Art and Carmen were married the first time in 1956. Senator Robert A. Taft Sr., U.S. Senator from the great state of Ohio, he passed away in July of 1953, a full three years before Art and Carmen's nuptials. Senator Taft had a son, Robert Jr., who would also serve as a U.S. Senator from Ohio, but he wouldn't take office until 1971. Taft was a superstar politician and would have been an amazing get 
as a wedding guest, just not in 1956. <laughs> In 1957, a Senate committee named Taft Sr., one of America's five greatest senators of all time. Art also mentioned President Eisenhower was on the guest list. Dwight David Ike Eisenhower served as the 34th president of the United States from January of 1953 through January of 61. Eisenhower was a war hero, the first supreme allied commander in Europe, and the guy who built the U.S. interstate system. For the most part, everybody liked Ike. He died in March of 1969 at the age of 78. After that reaction to Mama's I'm a mother comment, <laughs> Carlson looks at Carmen. I'm not rude. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were. I... Carlson looks thoughtful for a moment. You're right, I was. It's all right. <clears throat> no, no, it isn't all right. Yes, it is. Oh, thank you, darling. Oh, you're welcome, sweetheart. The two of them kiss. Mama rolls her eyes. Good God. She takes a drink from her glass. Carlson starts to talk, and he's stammering a bit. All right, Arthur, come on out with it. Well, we'd like to have a little wedding. And then I emphasize the word little. And you would like for me to not interfere. Exactly. Oh, I wouldn't dream of it. Carlson looks surprised. You wouldn't. Well, why let you two break my heart again? Oh, here we go. Mama tells them 25 years was a long time ago. I've mellowed since then. <laughs> and wow, if this is mellow, imagine what she was 25 years ago. She takes another drink. Art wants to confirm. He wants to make sure she understands. You'd just come to the wedding. There, there'd be, you know... No parties, no senators, no presents. Mama tells them, as you wish. You see Carlson and Carmen both relax, and they thank her. Mama asks if that's all. Carlson tells her, yes, that's all. So Mama checks her watch. If you'll excuse me, the Brady Bunch is on. (laughs) She likes the Brady Bunch. The Brady Bunch. Hmm. I would not have pictured Mama Carlson as a Brady Bunch fan. Carlson thanks his mother for her time. She tells them Hirsch will show them out. Oh, it's all right, Mom. I, I grew up here. Oh, yes, that's right. It's hard to remember sometimes. (laughs) There was to be a lovely wedding party in this room once. Invitations were sent. Presents were purchased. Mama apologizes, saying her mind wandered. So Mama would be heading off to watch a syndicated rerun of The Brady Bunch. The original bunch had aired starting in September 1969, running for five seasons and 117 episodes. The final first-run episode aired in March of 1974. That's right, gang. The Brady Bunch got one more season than WKRP. (laughs) The Bradys, like WKRP, were also a powerhouse in syndication. From its first syndicated airing in September of 1975, through its launch on MeTV in 2010, it is estimated that an episode of The Brady Bunch ran somewhere in the world at least once every single day for 35 years. Carmen tells Mama goodbye and holds out her hand. Mama holds up her right hand to show that she's holding a drink and she can't take Carmen's hand. <laughs> so instead, Carmen says thank you and heads out of the room. Art, looking uncomfortable, tells Mama goodbye and heads to the door, joining Carmen. They both turn to say goodbye one more time, then they hurry out of the room to the foyer. 
Mama lets out a loud, dramatic sigh. She puts the back of her hand to her forehead, and she drops to the couch. And this is not a subtle sigh. This is a stage <laughs> sigh. Uh, this is her last-ditch attempt for a little sympathy. It works. From out in the foyer, we hear Art. What do you want? At least a shower. Is that all? Of course. You swear? I swear. Okay. <laughs> She got her way. She got her way. We hear the door to the house slam. (laughs) (laughs) Every time, Hirsch comes into the living room. Bring me the phone. Okay, now you got to picture this scene. Mama is sitting on the sofa. The phone is sitting right behind her on the sofa table. Hirsch grabs the phone and very aggressively just turns it around so it's now facing Mama. He then just walks out of the room. When he does that move, turning the phone, you hear the phone's bells jingle, jingle. I just love how these two are constantly at each other all the time. It's just this constant battle going on passive-aggressively. Hush! We fade into Mr. Carlson's office where he's on the phone talking to Carmen. He tells her Bailey and Jennifer are headed over to Mama's house, waiting for her to arrive. He tells Carmen Mama promised it would only be the four of them. Yeah, right. (laughs) He tells her to have a lovely shower. He's planning to eat downtown. Uh, I love you. Bye. He hangs up the phone, and we hear a knock on the door. Carlson tells them to come in. The door opens, and it's Herb. Herb enters wearing what looks to be a weird outfit. It's a khaki raincoat, and underneath it we can see light blue nylon knee socks, his white shoes, and it really looks like he's not wearing any pants. (laughs) We were going to throw in a fashion alert here until we realized he's going to take that coat off. Just wait. We'll get to the alert. Why don't you just stop by the bullpen first? You know, I understand that the gals are having a shower. That's really too bad. They get to have a shower and you don't get to have a bachelor party. You know, I guess no one was thinking. I guess there's not that one person you can count on. Art tells Herb a bachelor party is the last thing in the world he'd want. I'd kill somebody who gave me a bachelor party. Herb looks down to the floor (laughs) and he begins to have trouble breathing. He's doing that hyperventilating thing he was doing in the painting. Art asks him if he's all right and even begins slapping him on the face. Herb catches his breath enough to talk. It was was Les's idea. I tried to talk him out of it. Mr. Carlson asks what he's talking about. Herb tells Mr. Carlson Les is planning a bachelor party for him right now in the bullpen. I tried to talk him out of it. Oh, God love him. Isn't that sweet? Herb begins to hyperventilate again. We head into the bullpen where we've got a mini poster watch. Yay. If you look on the hallway wall to the right of the bullpen door, you'll see a poster featuring a woman with a ton of red hair. This is Juice Newton. The poster is promoting her sixth studio and third solo album, Juice. And no, her name isn't really Juice. It's Judy. Judy Cohen from Virginia Beach. She was born in 1952. This album had just been released in February of 1981, and this one was a juggernaut. Juice produces an amazing three top ten hits. Angel of the Morning. Just call me Angel of the Morning, Angel. The sweetest thing I've ever known, and the biggest hit of her career, Queen of Hearts. with the Queen of Hearts. No one in it really smart. Joker in the only fool Who'll do anything for you 
Queen of Hearts would spend a total of 27 weeks on the charts, with two of those weeks at number two. It most likely would have reached number one had it not been for the hit duo of Diana Ross and Lionel Richie holding first with their monster single, Endless Love. Endless Love. Diane Lai would spend nine weeks in the top spot. In the bullpen, we see Andy, Les, Johnny, and Venus. Herb and Art enter. Okay, ta-da! Here he is, the man we're about to lose to matrimony. They all greet Art as he walks in, smiling. We see a bowl of chips and five large bottles of booze on Herb's desk. Well, you having a good time, big guy? So far. (laughs) Tell you what, it, uh, it wasn't Les's idea. I tried to share the credit, because, you know, that's how I am. But, hey, what the heck? It was my idea exclusively. Hart turns to the others and tells him he appreciates it. No, Mr. Carlson, we just got to chip down. Not now, Travis. Her backs up a bit so that he is standing apart from anyone. Why do I have on this raincoat? I don't know, Herb. Herb unties the belt from his waist and begins unbuttoning the coat. He explains that this is a theme party. Looking at Mr. Carlson, he goes on to say that it was 25 years ago when he and Carmen were married. So we all decided to wear what we wore 25 years ago. So, ta-da! Herb throws off the coat, and we see his outfit. And if I might say, it's time. Herb Darling, fashion alert. Herb is wearing blue, gray, and white plaid shorts with a bright red and white patterned short-sleeved button-up shirt, light blue nylon knee socks, and his signature white shoes and white belt. And his button-up shirt is tucked snugly into those little polyester shorts. (laughs) And we still don't get to see the legs. They're covered up by the shorts Uh, and the socks. The knees and the little bit of the thigh. Venus, Johnny, and Andy all have a good laugh at Herb's outfit. Les turns away from her. (laughs) He can't look. (laughs) You'd have to shield your eyes. Art has his head down trying to hold in the laughter. I'd um, just like to ask the rest of the guys, you know... And I'm not going to get mad why they didn't dress the way they did 25 years ago. Uh, Let's go around the room, Les. This is the way I was dressed 25 years ago. Herb agrees. He then asked me what his story is. Is that the way you dressed 25 years ago? No, Herb. I decided it was just another jughead idea of yours, so I ignored it. (laughs) Walking over to the bottles of booze on his desk, Herb says, okay, fine. He tells them there's always one bad apple. Everybody just come on in here and get drunk, except me, of course, who has a little problem in that area, okay? Come on now, because I have a a big surprise for you in about 15 minutes. Herb hands Carlson a drink. We transition to Carmen sitting on the couch in Mama's living room. She is staring into space as the camera expands taking in the room. Mama is sitting on the other end of the couch, Bailey on a velvet stool and Jennifer in a chair. They're all holding drinks, not saying a word. Mama is holding her drink and a cigarette in one hand. And her cigarette is one of those brown, thin, cigarillo-looking things that were really popular in the 70s and 80s. Man, would those stink! She's got the cigarette between her pointer and middle fingers, and then she's holding the glass with her ring finger and pinky and thumb, all in one hand. I really think that was kind of a 50s, 60s-era cocktail party move. Like a pose. Yeah. Jennifer checks her watch. You ask me, Fred Waring would be a welcome sight about that. Mama asks them if Hirsch can get them anything. (laughs) They all say no. 
Bailey timidly addresses the group. I was thinking of standing. <laughs> She looks at Mama. May I do that? Mama tells her, of course. Bailey has a drink in one hand and a little cookie in the other. They all watch as she stands. Well, that's much better. <laughs> She once again looks at Mama. Might I move about? But certainly. We're here to have fun. The way she's speaking, I guess when you're around mama and in that atmosphere, you pick very formal sounding language. But boy, she's scared to death to move. <laughs> so Carmen looks over at Jennifer. It's always a pleasure to see you, Jennifer. Thank you. Trying to get a little conversation started, Carmen smiles, then looks down at the floor. Bailey has wandered over to the fireplace. She's studying the painting that is mounted above the fireplace. These paintings are by N.C. Wyeth. Isn't that Andrew Wyeth's father? Yes, that's correct. Looking at the painting, Bailey comments they are very nice. Mama says thank you. Then Bailey adds, This one is of a hanging. Yes, I'm particularly fond of that. <laughs> Very much in favor of capital punishment. <laughs> And Mama says this smiling. Bailey mentions N.C. Wyeth. Newell Conyers Wyeth, known as N.C. Wyeth, is an American artist and illustrator. In fact, he's considered possibly America's greatest illustrator. Wyeth illustrated 112 books for Scribner, the Scribner Classics series. His first, a series of illustrations for Treasure Island, is considered his greatest. The proceeds from the project paid for his home and studio. Wyeth also painted more than 3,000 paintings, although we couldn't find the hanging among them. <laughs> hey, this is Al calling from the future. It's true we couldn't find an N.C. Wyeth painting called The Hanging, because that's not the name of it. A big thanks to Michael Hernandez, the accountant of rock. He found it. This actually is an N.C. Wyeth painting, only it's called The Gibbet. Thanks, Michael. Now... Back to the past. It is true that N.C. Wyeth is the father to famed late 20th century American painter Andrew Wyeth. Four of Wyeth's five children became artists. The fifth, Nathaniel, became an engineer for DuPont, where he worked on the team that invented the plastic soda bottle. N.C. Wyeth died in 1945 at the young age of 62. Mama looks at Carmen and tells her, uh-oh, she's taken the liberty of inviting a few friends over mm. tonight. Carmen is surprised. Tonight? Yes, tonight. Oh, well, I hope you don't mind. Oh, no, not at all. Harsh! <laughs> <laughs> And she had that same attack on the word, too. Yes. Carmen is holding her glass out to her side. She looks a little bit shocked at herself for yelling Hirsch. Back in the bullpen, all the guys are seated on the couch as two women in tiny sequined bodysuits are dancing on the DJ desk and Bailey's desk. And hey, we know that dancer on the DJ desk. Mm -hmm. It's Feather Austin. She was one of the interviewees for the advice show in Ask Jennifer. She did say in her interview she was a dancer, and this would kind of explain how she's in Herb's Rolodex. The camera pans down the line of guys. 
Johnny is drinking from his mug, his eyes moving back and forth from (laughs) one dancer to the other. Venus has a, I can't believe I'm actually watching this expression on his face as he watches the women. Les is disgusted and uncomfortable. He's looking at the dancers through squinted eyes. Andy's mouth is hanging open in disbelief and... Mr. Carlson looks as if he has just eaten something that didn't agree with him. So we know Feather, but our other stripper is being played by Holly Smith. Holly tried to make a go of the acting thing in the late 70s and early 80s. She will eventually rack up 10 acting credits. This appearance on WKRP was her last for six years. She shows up again on Magnum P.I. in 1987. More interesting than Holly's acting career is her music career. In 1969, Holly was one of Dean Martin's all-female singing group, The Gold Diggers. She was on all nine episodes of the 1969 Summer Replacement TV show, and she came back in 2009 for An Evening with the Gold Diggers, a reunion concert and video. And do you remember the Gold Diggers at all? No, I don't. I kind of remember watching this show. I remember the show, but for some reason I can't recall the Gold Diggers. It was a summer replacement because it was going to take the same spot as Dean Martin's show. They were worried about losing the Dean Martin audience. So Mm -hmm. they came up with this, and it was actually called Dean Martin Presents the Gold Diggers. And did it work? Did it save the time? It did hold the time period, and I think my dad was a big Gold Diggers fan. That might be why Ah. I was watching it, because dad wanted to check out the ladies (laughs) on the Gold Diggers. The camera then gets to Herb. Herb is, he's into it. He's chair dancing, smiling, moving his arms in time to the music. One of the dancers bends down so she's squatting. She's removed one of her black elbow length gloves and tosses it. The glove lands on Mr. Carlson. He lets out a little yell and he's struggling to get up. I don't think I've been this embarrassed since the last bachelor party that somebody threw me. Thought you'd like this. Carlson stands. He's going home. Herb says he can't go. Carlson asks why not. Because I've invited a whole bunch of advertising clients over, huh? Hey! Smiling, Herb begins dancing as a defeated Mr. Carlson sinks back down onto the couch. Our strippers are working it to a tune called Rock Radio by Gene Dunlap featuring The Ridgeways. This comes from an album called It's Just the Way I Feel. Other than that, we couldn't find anything about this song or about Gene Dunlap. We did track down the Ridgeways. The Ridgeways are a trio of sisters named Gracie, Esther, and Gloria Ridgeway, who sang soul and R&B in the 1980s. They also performed as Sweet Cream and the Ridgeway Sisters. Back over at Mama's, we see that some other ladies have joined the group. They are all around Mama's age and dressed in their fanciest dresses. Two women are on each side of Carmen, all excited, telling her what a wonderful idea getting married again is. 
One of them is crying as she tells Carmen how romantic it is. Our shower ladies are being played by Mavis Neal Palmer and Mary Ann Gibson. Now, since neither of these ladies included her picture on her IMDb profile, we're not sure which is which. Mavis is British. She was born in London in 1913. She has 41 acting credits starting all the way back in 1953. Her debut was on the BBC Sunday Night Theatre. Mavis's last credit was in 1987. She appeared as a guest star on the reboot series What's Happening Now? Mavis died at her home in San Diego in November of 1996. She was 83. Our other shower lady, Mary Ann Gibson, has 27 acting credits. She started her career in 1970 on an episode of My Three Sons. She was primarily active from 1970 through 1996. Mary does have one more credit showing up in 2020. She played neighbor number three on a series called Adam Bloom. Mama comes over and takes Carmen by the arm, leading her away from the women. I've been checking out the shower presents. We're raking in a pretty good haul. Oh, I begged you not to do this. Mama asks Carmen to please forgive her, but she can't help herself. I'm a wedding junkie. (laughs) After all, you did run away the first time. Carmen tells Mama she's right. So please do just give me this. I ask so little. Carmen agrees. Mama asks Carmen if she is mad, and Carmen tells her, no. Then Mama puts her arm around Carmen. Mama tells Carmen she'd like her to wear her mother's wedding dress. I wonder what that would look like. Yeah, that's probably pretty ornate. Carmen tells Mama it's not going to be a formal wedding. Not formal? Oh dear, I'm not sure we can have that. (laughs) The big clock begins to bong just as Carmen looks at Mama with a worried expression. The clock strike is a perfect punctuation for Mama. It's like a sinister feel. Back in the bullpen, we see several men that we don't know, presumably advertisers on the station, and they've joined the party. And in true WKRP fashion, we don't get any credit on anybody in the room because nobody spoke. But they're having a good time. They're laughing and drinking. Some are dancing with the strippers. And if you look on Bailey's desk, you can see the dancing jean-clad legs of a guy in a black t-shirt and black jacket. This is supposed to be Johnny, but it doesn't exactly look like Johnny. And they never let us see his face. We kind of think a stunt dancer might have been brought in to dance up there on the desk. I really think if that was Johnny, they'd have probably let us see his face. Probably. Mr. Carlson is going through the crowd looking for Herb. He finds Herb with a bottle in one hand and a cup in the other. I don't get it. I told him to dress, period, you know, like they did 25 years ago. Herb shrugs his shoulders. I'm going to get eat with you for this, Herb. Remember that. What's a friend for? Do a friend the favor ask for nothing in return, eh? Mr. Carlson walks away, and as he goes by Herb's desk, the stripper, played by Feather, is sitting on it, shaking her upper body. She suddenly leans back too far, falling into Mr. Carlson's arms. (laughs) Carlson sets her back up on the desk and heads out of the room. She continues shimmying into the transition. The party rolls on and we transition to another stripper song. This one is I Can't Turn You Loose, written and first recorded by Otis Redding in 1965. It started out as the B-side to Just One More Day. When it became a bigger hit than the A-side, I Can't Turn You Loose became a signature song for Redding. I can't turn you loose. If I do, I'm gonna lose. 
It often appeared in his live performances. You may also recognize the instrumental of this song as the intro music used by the Blues Brothers in their live shows. Returning to Mama's house, an upset Carmen is explaining to Jennifer and Bailey what Mama is planning. She wants us to be married at the cathedral, a full high mass ceremony. We're not even Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> They're not even Catholic. Bailey asks her what she's going to do, and Carmen admits she doesn't know. The cathedral, Mama mentioned, is most likely the Cathedral Basilica of St. Peter in Chains. It's the Cathedral of the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Cincinnati, located at 8th and Plum in downtown. The door behind them opens, and Hirsch enters. He walks up to Carmen. Excuse me, Mrs. Carson. But your husband's outside standing in the bushes. He's asked me to ask you if you'd care to elope with him. Carmen asks Hirsch to repeat what he just said. Bailey and Jennifer are thrilled for her. Oh, Mrs. Carlson, have a lovely honeymoon. <laughs> just as wonderful as the first one. Oh. Carmen thanks them, telling them it's just like the first time. Glancing around, Carmen quickly escapes out the door. Hirsch closes the door behind her. <laughs> Then he walks over to Bailey and Jennifer. He is laughing and clapping his hands. May I please get you to something? Anything at all? Bailey and Jennifer tell him, no, thank you. Hirsch's glee here is hilarious. He remembers when this happened 25 years ago, and he's looking forward to more distress for Mama. A woman hurries over one of our shower ladies, thrusting her glass towards Hirsch. Well, I'd like another drink, please. Oh, get it yourself. I'm busy. <laughs> The woman quickly leaves. We transition to a hotel room. The door opens and we hear traffic passing by as Mr. Carlson and Carmen come in. Mr. Carlson is carrying their luggage. They both stand and look around for a bit. The room looks seedy. Carlson looks at Carmen. Changed. <laughs> well, it's been 25 years. Yeah, but it was, it was so nice, so charming. Carmen asks Art if he wants to leave. He tells her no. We spent our first honeymoon here. We'll, we'll spend this honeymoon here. Carmen wants to freshen up a bit. She takes her suitcase from Mr. Carlson and goes into the restroom. Art takes off his hat and tosses it on the bed. We get a great shot of the painting hanging over the bed. You probably don't have one of these in your home. It's a <laughs> naked woman covered with see-through lacy material lying back on a furry blanket. She's facing the painter. To add to the weirdness, there is a white dove in flight over her. You don't know. Somebody might have that in their home. Yeah, sure. They might put <laughs> that in the foyer. Art turns on the TV and sits on the end of the bed. We hear heavy breathing and a woman moaning from the TV. Art's face is glowing in the light from the television. He gets a shocked look and adjusts his tie. He does not immediately reach over and turn it off, though. From the bathroom, we hear Carmen asking him, what is that? T -t Television, honey. Laverne and Shirley. And the moaning woman doesn't get credit either. No. We don't know who that was. The ABC sitcom Laverne and Shirley would have been in first-run network release at this time. Laverne and Shirley, starring Penny Marshall and Cindy Williams, ran for eight seasons from January of 1976 through May of 1983. They did 178 episodes. By their third season, the Happy Days spinoff had become the most watched show on television. Hugh Wilson was regularly told by CBS execs 
to do more big physical gags, like, you know, what they do on Laverne and Shirley. In the opening credits for seasons one through five of Laverne and Shirley, the pair recite a cryptic phrase. They count to eight, then they say, Shlemiel, Shlemazel, Hassan Pfeffer, Incorporated. Shlemiel, Shlemazel, Hassan Pfeffer, Incorporated. This is actually a Yiddish-American hopscotch chant that came from Penny Marshall's childhood. We've talked about the word schlemiel, but what's Hassenpfeffer? Well, Hassenpfeffer is a German stew made from rabbit and onions. Mr. Carlson walks to the side of the bed and he sees a little machine on the bedside table that takes coins. He reaches into his pocket, retrieves a quarter, sits on the bed, and inserts it into the machine. Nothing happens. He hits the machine. Nothing. Giving up, he begins pacing. He pulls the small jewelry box out of his pocket and sits on the end of the bed, nervously waiting for Carmen. The door to the bathroom opens and Carmen comes out. She looks a bit nauseous. (laughs) She closes the door, not really wanting to touch the doorknob. She goes over to the bed and has a seat beside Art. Arthur, there's a machine in the bathroom that sells things. Once again, straightens his tie. Maybe you can't go back. Carmen suggests another motel, perhaps? Wouldn't be the same. It'll be better. Mr. Carlson pulls out the jewelry box and opens it. I didn't have the money 25 years ago to buy this ring. He takes the ring out of the box and slips it onto Carmen's left ring finger. Still remember the sign. (sighs) Carmen looks into his eyes and they kiss. Suddenly, the bed begins to vibrate. It's the bed, honey. Uh, It vibrates. Oh. (laughs) Well, you want to go? Well, not until this is finished. (laughs) (laughs) The screen fades as Carmen and Carlson continue to sit on the shaking bed. The WKRP writers seem to be fascinated by coin-operated motel room devices. We saw the coin-operated radio in Hotel Oceanview. The device Art has activated here with his quarter goes by the brand name Magic Fingers. New Jersey resident John Joseph Hufftailing invented the machine in his basement in 1958. He'd been working for a company selling vibrating beds that had the vibrating devices already built in. Well, after Hufftailing tried to repair one, he realized it was the vibrating mechanism, not the bed, that was important. His idea was to create a device that would install to the box springs of any existing bed. They were cheaper and way easier to sell than the whole mattress. Magic Fingers machines were everywhere in the 70s and 80s. At its peak, more than 175 franchise operators had installed More than a million fingers devices to beds in hotels and motels from sea to shining sea. For 25 cents, Magic Fingers promised to give you 15 minutes of relaxing massage. The sexual connotations of a vibrating bed were obvious. Seedier motel operators promoted the beds in the seediest way possible. Ultimately, the downfall of the Magic Fingers empire had nothing to do with their reputation. It was all about thievery. By the late 70s, dealers said they were spending all of their time fixing the machines. People would break them open to steal the quarters. (laughs) 
Huff-Tailing died in June of 2009 at the age of 92. Amazingly, at the time of his death, there were still some motels in the western United States who had Magic Fingers machines installed on their beds. We fade up in the lobby for our capper scene. It is a new morning and Mr. Carlson enters, saying good morning to Jennifer. Your mother is in your office. The door to his office opens and Mama comes out. Hi, Mom. (laughs) Jennifer tells them she thinks she will just take a stroll around the barracks. She leaves. She passes Herb on her way out of the lobby. Mr. Carlson asks Mama how she's feeling. Not well. Oh. I have a bone to pick with you, Arthur. I'm very angry, not to mention embarrassed. Herb is standing behind Mr. Carlson, listening to their conversation. Well, Mr. Carlson asks why Herb is there. I don't know, and I don't care. (laughs) And wow, a new day, so a new outfit for Herb. It's time! Herb Garlic, fashion alert. Herb is wearing a navy blue and other shades of blue plaid jacket with maroon elbow patches and maroon pocket flaps. He has on a white dress shirt with a maroon and white patterned tie and solid maroon pants. I'll tell you why. You'll tell him later. Yes, ma'am. But Herb doesn't leave. He continues. Uh, I just want to say that I went to a great deal of time and trouble to throw you a party. And you just walked out, ran away. And now I understand there's not even going to be a wedding. Even though I've already arranged to rent a red plaid crushed velour tuxedo with tails. It just shows you what I get for caring so much. Thanks a lot, sir. Herb then turns and leaves the lobby. Art turns to his mother, ready for the worst. Yes, Mom. Mama shakes her head. How do you follow red plaid crushed <laughs> velour? Never mind. <laughs> Mama walks away. Art looks relieved as he watches his mother leave. He opens his office door and goes in. And we fade on a simple little wedding. Man, that was a ton of fun. And we got to meet Hirsch for the very, very first time. I swear I wish they had made a Mama and Hirsch spinoff. I'd have watched that. So that's going to do it for this episode. What is up for next week, Donna? We will be talking about nothing to fear but... While Johnny does a night stint on the radio, the station is robbed. No one is hurt, but a lot of the expensive items are taken. Mr. Carlson installs a security system and everyone starts being paranoid. And that's all for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, make sure to check our show notes. You can find us on social media. Follow our Facebook page. It's at WKRP cast. For more WKRP fun, become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash WKRPcast for behind-the-scenes fun, full interviews, and a whole lot more. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, wkrpcast at gmail.com. And remember to please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye now. May the good news be yours. WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders.
almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger! <laughs> 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 <laughs>